We had a little bit of an issue with one of the mics this week. We've had the same issue for like the past two weeks. We're working on replacing that. So by the time, uh, hopefully next episode or so, um, we should have that fixed. Uh, we're trying to figure out exactly what the issue is. We bought new cables. That wasn't it. I think it's maybe the mics or audio recorder. I ran a filter on this so that removes most of the like hissing and, and sort of like background noise, like kind of crackling we were getting, but you may hear it made our voices sound a little bit different, a little muffly kind of, uh, so just preparation. It's not bad. I think it sounds okay. Still. It's just not quite as good as it usually does. We will have it fixed shortly. Thank you for your patience. The end. On this prequel episode, we've got our fan reaction to The Click. We're learning about Stanley Kubrick and previewing The Shining. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, a podcast where we talk about books that are based on movies. It's a prequel episode. It's the prequel to our Halloween episode, which this year is The Shining, which we've been waiting to do for a little while. Very popular. Uh, I believe it's been recommended several times, mm-hmm. um, and we're getting to it finally. And not any specific reference. It's not a. This wasn't a. This one wasn't a um, patron. No. Specific recommendation. No. But, this was my. This was what I had scheduled for Halloween, like a year out. Yeah. Yeah, we've been sitting on this one for a while. So before we get to the preview of The Shining, we've got some other stuff to talk about, including our patron shoutouts. No new patrons this week, but we do have. Our Academy Award winners, and they are Winchester's Never Die, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, I Still Don't Like Twilight, But I Understand It A Lot Better, and Alina Deletkolova. Thank you all very much, as usual. You are fantastic for supporting us, and we appreciate it so very greatly. And uh, I think we've gotten, hopefully, getting to all of your recommendations in due time we're getting there we're working our way through them let's go ahead and hear what everybody had to say about our thoughts on the click yeah well you know that's just like uh your opinion man we got way more feedback for this one than i was concerned that we might you said that but then i remembered seeing like the like the sort of numbers on social media going into the episode and it was do it like we were getting more interaction than i was expecting going in so i was kind of mm-hmm. thinking we might get more we didn't like not like lots of numbers no. of comments but the comments that we did get are long yes <laughs> really really uh like inspired some passion with this one <laughs> so on twitter we had a total of seven votes. Three of them were for the book and four of them were for the movie. Pretty split. Yeah, pretty split. Kelly Napier at Standby for Live said, If hard-pressed, I pick the movie. Only because I liked how Claire saved Massey from the Chris Abley situation versus just seeing parents who can't act accordingly. That being said, the book read like a poorly executed writing exercise. If it had been turned in for a grade, it would have received no more than a D, <laughs> only because the assignment was completed. <laughs> Go off, then. The ideas are unoriginal, weakly formed, and barely executed. Then the movie does itself no favors by mostly carbon copying the book and not improving where it could. 
Also, the book and movies are both terrible examples of how to treat any human being, let alone people you claim are your friends. As a parent of a 12-year-old, she would not be allowed to read or see this. Throw it all into the sun. <laughs> this gif directed at both formats. And the gif was the principal from Billy Madison saying, uh, What you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. There you go. Our other comment on Twitter, um, from Plant All the Things Irony, that's at Dark Irony, said, First time listener, first time caller. Nice. Just finished the episode. Great listen. I have a few comments as a reader of four or five of the books in this mm. series. I don't want to defend them as literature, <laughs> just more, uh, just provide another perspective. The lack of plot arcs is part of the appeal. It makes the books more mindless and more escapist. They are just a world to hang out in. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. There are books, there are plenty of books like that, um, uh, especially in the younger, obviously in children's mm -hmm. books and that sort of thing. Uh, like the, um, there's a series, and this is a different type of series, but there's a series of books by Lewis Sacker, uh, Wayside Stories at what, what Wayside Stories at Westside High or something it's like. Wayside Stories from Wayside School, I think. West, yeah, something like that. No, so, no, it's Sideways Stories, sideways from, stories Wayside from Wayside School. School. I had it flipped. That's it. Uh, and there's like several books in that series, and there those are like more vignettes from my memory. It's been a yeah. long. I used to like them a lot as a kid, but it's been a long time since I read them, and there aren't. But again, that's a little different is that there aren't I don't those books. I don't remember having overarching plots versus mm -hmm. like chapters that were like vignettes kind of. But I, mean, I could be wrong about that. That kind of read on it makes me wonder if maybe what the author was going for was something more akin to a serialized like a Sweet Valley High kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Or it was Babysitter's or like, Club. Yeah, or like Babysitter's Club. Um which it didn't really read that way to me. Yeah. But you never know. Yeah. Um, Dark Irony went on to say they are just, uh, oh, nope, I already read that. Second, Massey's inability to accept sarcasm from anyone else rings so true for mm. me because I know a Massey. My very, very alpha female cousin is a Massey. And she also cannot accept sarcasm from any other source. Hmm. If someone says something funny, she gets this intense look as if trying to figure out if she's offended or not. And if you say it was a joke, she's like, oh, okay. Could also be that she owns the joke <laughs> space and no one is allowed to intrude. Interesting. So. There are people like that. I will say, yeah. I don't want to say that. The, yeah, I, it did. It did strike me as odd watching it in the movie. But the, thinking back on it and what they're saying, I, I feel like I've definitely met people mm -hmm. like that who are sarcastic, but also don't get it all like don't realize when mm -hmm. it's directed at them all the time I feel i'm sure like we're all guilty of it sometimes to be honest but i didn't pick up on that as much in the book yeah. as we did in the movie yeah. and i in the movie it maybe rang a little more false probably because you're watching it and yeah. you're used to like certain types of interactions especially in movies like yeah the, yeah so thank you at dark irony for listening and commenting we hope you keep listening mm-hmm over on Facebook, we had a total of five votes. Three of them were for the book, and two of them were for the movie. So we ended so up we, all square. Yeah, we did. Um, pretty well split again there. 
Sarah said, this was probably a weird choice of first book slash movie for me to choose to read and watch in real time with the podcast, but I have always found the mean girl gang trope to be a fascinating one, and this was a story I had not heard of before, so my interest was piqued. Ultimately, I was fairly disappointed by both the book and the movie, but I have to give Recurring it to, theme I, here. <laughs> I have to give it to the movie because the writing in the book was so bad. Maybe I would have been able to overlook it if I were a middle schooler, but as an adult, it was almost painful to read. The movie, at least, ironed out a few of the pacing issues and was able to get the story's main beats across without all of the awkward narrative problems the book had. I do wish that the movie had changed the ending to make it a bit more satisfying, though I didn't expect a good ending from the book because I knew that it was only the first in a long series about these characters, but I had hoped that the movie would do better. The thing that did ring painfully true for me in both versions of the story, though, was the extremely fickle nature of the friendships between the girls. Though the nature of their popularity was very different, I have very unpleasant memories of being shunned and ostracized mm. by the, quote, popular girls in my class once we all reached middle school, and of spending several difficult years simultaneously hating them for how they treated me and desperately wanting to be liked by them again and grasping at any crumbs of attention they would throw my way, however fleeting they were. Though the actions of the Mean Girls in this story were very over the top, I think the push and pull of wanting to be friends with the popular kids, no matter how badly they may treat you, is a fairly common experience at that age, and was the one thing that both the book and the movie did a good job with, despite the story's other flaws. Interesting. I don't disagree that I think that's probably common. Or uh, oh yeah, yeah, uh, you know, wanting to be and and, and their experience, your experience sounds very familiar. Um, I'm sure to lots of people, uh, myself to, to some facets included, or you know, to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that I still, at least for me, I, I guess that, like from my experience, it was like, oh sure, I would have liked to have hung out with the popular kids, maybe, but like. When I if, as soon as they would start make if they ever would start making fun of me, I would just leave like I, I don't like I wouldn't want it like my 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 desire only extended so far as like <laughs> it seemed like they were interested in me being around. I don't know. Maybe that, again, maybe that obviously everybody's uh, experience with that isn't the same. I like I, I totally get the push pull and like the kind of love hate back and forth yeah. with the popular kids. That's not unlike what my experience in middle school was. The high school I went to was a lot bigger, so I yeah. had I had like way less problems in high school. There were more people to yeah, hang you out can just with. Have your own friend group. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think my issue with the what the books did was still that I just felt like Claire's motivations for wanting to be friends with them weren't clear. Yeah. Other than like just to be part of the popular group, yeah. which again in the movie it it doesn't establish. She doesn't strike as, at least to me, she didn't strike me as that kind of character who was like desperate to be popular. Right, she just seemed to cool doing her own thing, but then just like really wanted to be friends with these girls for some reason, which was interesting. Other and yeah, and other than I don't know, yeah, it is interesting, and I I don't think it's um. There's definitely the fickle nature of friendship at that age is is for sure a, a, a true thing that uh and and allegiances can turn very quickly and that sort of thing so I, I i see what they're saying and our last comment on facebook was from dorian who said so this was my patreon pick 
This was a movie my mom brought home from the video store when I was younger. She always picked movies that had girls on the cover or were animated. I saw the movie first and remember being really into that fashion and the lifestyle depicted in the movie. The big house, no school uniforms, horseback ridings, and sleepover every, sleepovers every Friday night really dazzled mm -hmm. me. That's fair. Yep. It never really crossed my mind how mean everyone t was to Claire. I gave the book a try but never finished because it just couldn't hold my attention. I rediscovered the movie during qu quarantine after having a few glasses of wine. <laughs> <laughs> the best way to rediscover yes. <laughs> anything from your childhood. <laughs> during my rewatching, I felt very differently. Everyone, even the teachers, were so mean to Claire. When she shows up late to art because she's a new student at a giant school with no one showing her around, the teacher is a real dick about it. He really is. He really is. And I think that was, that he plays a, a very, like, tropey, cliche, yeah. like, um, gay character, yeah. like, kind of over-the-top, like, sassy, mean, gay, sassy, gay yeah. teacher kind of character, but yeah. Yeah. I feel like we were supposed to view Massey as being threatened by Claire, but that's only mentioned once. I went to a school from grades 3rd to 6th where the girls were awful. I think Claire was trying to do the thing I tried, where you attempt to force yourself into the mean group in hopes of removing yourself as a target. That did not work for me. <laughs> Overall, the movie is not good, everybody's really mean, and the ending is not fulfilling. The thing I really wanted to talk about is that makeover scene. I always wanted a group of girls to take me under their wing and give me a beautiful makeover. I'm a sucker for a good makeover scene in films. I tend to like rom-coms and teen, young adult coming-of-age films for that very reason. Those girls gave Claire a terrible fair faucet hair and a beige skirt suit. I would not have been surprised if the movie said those girls are still in her enemies and they gave her a bad makeover to make her think she looks good in order to embarrass her at the party. That could have been an interesting twist, actually. I will say, though, this what year was this? 2000, this movie is 2008. Uh, beige skirt suit, the peak of fashion, as we know from the <laughs> Twilight series. Bella rocks the beige skirt. <laughs> That's yes. fair. I did, when we were watching it, though, I did comment on her hair yes, during that scene. I yeah. was like, ooh. What did they do to her hair? Those bangs. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> they did. They, like, teased it up. Yeah. Which was not the style no, then at no. all. Thanks for doing this review. Please forgive how long-winded this is and any grammar errors. I decided to write this also after having a few <laughs> drinks. There you go. That's how we decided to record that episode, yeah. so. There you go. Fantastic. Uh uh, that's great thank you everybody for all your feedback that was fun we always enjoy hearing from you hearing what you have to say about the movies and what we had to say about them it is always interesting but now it's time for a very long-winded and meandering learning things segment we're learning about stanley kubrick no matter what anybody tells you words and ideas can change the world Okay, before we get started, this is going to be an incredibly abbreviated look into Stanley Kubrick's career, uh, with a strong focus on the filming of The Shining and some of the more controversial aspects of that part, uh, that event. Uh, he's one of the most prolific and written-about directors of all time. I couldn't begin to do justice to his career or his shortcomings in this very brief write-up. Uh, go out, read more, watch more. There's t documentaries. There's he is. It's not. Um, unfair to say that he's one of the most influential and important filmmakers maybe ever mm -hmm. uh i think easily in the top 10 probably uh so i 
that being said, there's also a lot more that I didn't go into on maybe the negative side. There's all kinds. There's all manner of things to discuss about Stanley Kubrick. Um, and it would have this this prequel episode would have been eight hours long. Yeah. So and we reiterate fairly frequently. Yes. These segments aren't meant to be comprehensive. Yes. So uh, if I miss anything important that you think is important, uh, then, you know, let us know. But I trying to hit some highlights and then get to some interesting stuff that I think will be interesting to talk about before we get to The Shining. So Stanley Kubrick was born in 1928 and raised in the Bronx, New York City. After graduating high school, Kubrick taught himself all the aspects of film production and directing, and he spent several years working as a photographer for Look Magazine before setting out into his filmmaking career. His first few short films in the early 1950s were primarily documentaries. His very first film was a 16-minute, although on IMDb it's his second, but there's numerous sources that I also said this was his first film. Um, it was a 16-minute uh, black-and-white documentary, documentary about the boxer Walter Cartier, whom he had photographed for Look Magazine uh, the year before. Kubrick spent $3,900 making the film and sold it to RKO Path for $4,000, which at the time was the most money the company had ever paid for a short film. And a profit, nonetheless. Yeah, and he made 100 bucks on it. <laughs> uh, and Kubrick feels that he learned a lot while well, he made a profit when it says he spent $3,900 on the film, I assume that does not remotely take into account uh, labor hours. So sure, he made sure, nothing near yeah. a profit. But yeah, <laughs> but who knows? Maybe it does. Uh, Kubrick feels that he learned a lot from the project and later would declare, quote, the best education in film is to make one. And uh, as somebody who's both been to some film classes and worked on some movies and short films and that sort of thing, I cannot... Um, agree with that enough that you learn so much more mm -hmm. it's one of those career paths where you learn infinitely more just doing the thing especially doing the thing with people who know it but even even you know who know how to do it and learning from them but even without that just doing it and failing and figuring out what you're doing uh which is true of a lot of things to mm -hmm. be fair um, but filmmaking in particular you can read a lot of things but until you actually go and do those things it's a very different world Kubrick, uh, after the uh, sort of success, quote-unquote, of his uh, short documentary about the boxer, would quit his job at Look Magazine and move to New York City to become a filmmaker. His first feature film was the 1953 anti-war film Fear and Desire, which received generally positive reviews at the time and actually can be watched in its entirety on Wikipedia. If you look up Fear and Desire, it's like an hour long or so. Huh. And it's interesting. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I kind of clicked through and watched some segments here and there. It's a very interesting um, sort of time capsule to see sort of the very his first attempt into filmmaking um, and see some of the some of the style, some of the finding his footwork and sort of the style. It's very similar or reminiscent of watching, although uh, maybe even less developed of watching something like Spaced. If you've watched all of Edgar Wright's movies like uh, Hot Fuzz and mm -hmm. Shaun of the Dead and World's End and, you know, uh, Scott Pilgrim, and then you go back and you watch the TV show Spaced, which he did year, several years before all of those. Um, it's a similar thing of seeing sort of you can those see elements. like where his personal like yeah. quirks and yeah, yeah. you can see that points. yeah, and they kind of developed beyond that. But you can see a little bit of that in this Fear and Desire film, and you yeah, you can watch the whole thing on Wikipedia if you would like to. 
Uh, so Kubrick's big breakout, we're going to skip ahead a little bit here. Kubrick's big breakout success would come in 1957 with the release of Paths of Glory, a World War I anti-war drama starring Kirk Douglas, and it's based on a novel of the same name. And I think here would be an interesting time to note that many of Kubrick's works, including The Shining, obviously, which we're going to talk about, are based on novels or short stories. Diane Johnson, who co-wrote uh, The Shining with Kubrick, said that he, quote, always said that it was better to adapt a book rather than write an original screenplay and that you should choose a work that isn't a masterpiece so you can improve on it, end quote. Which Savage. I, 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 yeah, <laughs> calling, out, uh, calling out The Shining there. But um, I do think that's actually at least the picking stuff that's not as good to improve upon it is an interesting mm-hmm. It's a good idea. I wish and, people would do that with movie yeah, remakes. People, we talk, you know, people have <laughs> joked about that for years yeah. about it, why don't they remake bad movies? And it's there are lots of reasons for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it would it is an interesting concept because yeah, if you take something that you think is has a good core mm-hmm. but maybe isn't done the best way uh, and remake that, like remake the click. It's got a, there are <laughs> there ideas <you> there. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> no, uh, remake Mortal Engines. We've talked about that before. That uh, We think Mortal Engines had a lot of potential and just mm-hmm. didn't quite get there. And with the correct director, could uh, could have been something really cool. So we're going to skip ahead even more here. But suffice, suffice to say that Kubrick would go on to have a string of successful movies, uh, both critically and uh, financially, uh, from here with Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, and Barry Lyndon, which brings us all the way up to 1980 and The Shining. Before we discuss Kubrick's work on The Shining, let's talk a bit about his directing technique and his relationship with actors. Kubrick is infamous for being a demanding director and a perfectionist, um, often requiring absurd numbers of takes for a given scene in a film. Jack Nicholson remarked that Kubrick would often ask for upwards of 50 takes while they were on the set of The Shining, uh, and that's that's not just something that was... um, special for The Shining, infamous for mm-hmm. just doing crazy, crazy numbers of takes. Uh, it uh, sounds expensive. It is, especially at the time, it's incredibly expensive because you're rolling real film. Yeah. It's a lot cheaper today if you're not shooting on film, which a lot of movies still do shoot on film and then digitize it. But uh, a lot of, you know, a fair number of movies today shoot digitally. And if you're doing that, it's in- way cheaper yeah. than uh, than d- dumping that much film into a camera and not using most of it. Um uh, there's a director who were uh, uh, Gone Girl. Who's the uh, uh, not Chris? Is it Chris? No, it's old uh, uh, Lynch. No, um, David. 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 Um, not Lynch. Um, oh no! It's I, I keep now. David Lynch is stuck in my head, and that's the other guy. That's a. Uh, that's a. Uh, no, I can't remember the name of the show. Ah. Cronenberg. No. David Fincher. Fincher. There's so many Davids. Anyways. <laughs> Too many Daves. Uh, David Fincher is also notorious for doing a ton of takes. Um, Kyle uh, from Good, Bad, or Bad, Bad has talked about when he was involved on some of the Gone Girl shooting, about mm-hmm. even on some of these like super minor little shots and scenes he was involved in. They just did dozens of takes of them, um, which is not not the standard. So this style of, of doing a ton of takes was used by Kubrick as an attempt to get the actors to stop consciously thinking about their lines or their delivery or their actions and start just delivering performances from a, quote, deeper place. This was and is criticized by some in the industry as irrational and unnecessary, but Kubrick firmly believed the process created the most authentic performances. 
Many actors seemed to agree and loved working with Kubrick. Uh, Tony Curtis, who was the star of Spartacus, said that Kubrick was his favorite director, saying, uh, quote, uh, his greatest effectiveness was his one-on-one relationship with actors, end quote. Malcolm McDowell recalls long discussions he had with Kubrick to help him develop his character in A Clockwork Orange. Uh, Kubrick was also open to Im- improvisation from and, and input from actors. Peter Sellers uh, especially felt that he was able to work freely freely during the shooting of Lolita, which he thinks was like a turning point in his career, and he credits a lot of that to uh, Kubrick allowing him to sort of explore the role and that sort of thing on camera. Uh, but that brings us to Kubrick and his relationship with Shelley Duvall on the set of The Shining. So, much has been written about and discussed on this topic, and again, I'm not here to provide an exhaustive discussion, but I wanted to make it a point in this Learning Things segment because I think it's important to know some of the context of the making of this film so as to both appreciate and criticize it more effectively. Without sugarcoating it, Kubrick mentally and arguably physically abused uh, Shelley Duvall during the making of The Shining. Just a little rundown list of things that have been reported and are were not are not disputed in any way these are like well known <laughs> uh he intentionally isolated her on the set and 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 told like other crew members and stuff to like not talk to her and not acknowledge her and that sort of thing uh he would cut her lines from the film unexpectedly without like giving her reasons and stuff to make her feel sort of paranoid and that sort of thing and while famously stupid high take counts are something uh kubrick is known for uh this one instance he forced Shelley Duvall to do 127 takes of the baseball bat scene to the point where when they were done filming it, she was dehydrated and her hands were like raw and bleeding from swinging the baseball bat around. Uh, Jack Nicholson, after the fact, praised Kubrick's directing, but pointed out that he, quote, turned into a different director, end quote, when he worked with Duvall. Duvall has said of the experience a lot of things over the course of her lifetime, but this is one. Quote, from May until October, I was really in and out of ill health because the stress of the role was so great. Stanley pushed me and prodded me further than I've ever been pushed before. It's the most difficult role I've ever had to play. And she famously showed Kubrick clumps of her hair that had fallen out due to the stress of the role. Now, there are some people that may argue that the ends justify the means. Uh, Duvall's performance, while panned at the time, she was actually nominated for a Razzie, which, boy... um, (laughs) I think, uh, I haven't seen the movie in years, but from my last, it's been several years, but the last time I watched it, I find her, her performance captivating and dynamic, uh, even if her, is, her character is a little bit one note, and we'll get into that a little bit more, obviously during the episode. And I will agree that there are times when great art can take sacrifices, but I'm firmly of the opinion that those should only be sacrifices on behalf of yourself. I might give up a night's sleep to finish a project that I'm deeply invested in, but I'd never force someone else to. Here's my take. Good art doesn't require abuse, and anyone who tells you otherwise is either a shit artist or an abuser. So all this isn't to say you can't enjoy The Shining or Duvall's performance. Hell, even Duvall has positive things to say about the film, Kubrick and her experience making the film. But it's important to consider what went into making of the film and to redress your feelings about it appropriately. Well said. (laughs) The end. (sighs) Okay. Let's go ahead and learn about The Shining, the book. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point, 
during the winter. He must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So The Shining is a 1977 horror novel by one Stephen King. We're now several books deep into Stephen King's catalog. Um, It is his third published novel and his first hardback bestseller. Uh, The success of The Shining pretty firmly established King as a prominent author in the horror genre. So after writing Carrie and Salem's Lot, which were his two novels preceding The Shining, um, both of those were set in small towns in his native state of Maine. Um, King was looking for a change for his next book. He said, I wanted to spend a year away from Maine so that my next novel would have a different sort of background. Now, allegedly, King opened an atlas of the United States on the kitchen table and randomly pointed to a location, which turned out to be Boulder, Colorado. Um, King and his his wife, Tabitha, checked into the Stanley Hotel in nearby Estes Park, Colorado, into room 217. Um, And according to King, the hotel was... A terrible documentary, by the way. (laughs) What? There's a documentary called Room 217. Oh, is there? That is about the shining and specifically like the conspiracy theories that have cropped up mm-hmm. around the shining and like the uh, the moon landing hoax and stuff. It's I don't, not that the documentary is necessarily terrible, but the subject is maddening to me because it's all like conspiracy theory nonsense. But anyways, sorry, continue. So according to King, when they went, the hotel was getting ready to close for the season and they were the only two guests, which sounds terrifying. Or great, especially because you're not stuck there all winter. Uh, if you're just there as a guest for like a week. For like a weekend? Yeah, that, mm, that could be fun. Hotels are too big. That it's, it's too big. I think it could be fun. It's too much space. I think it could be fun. How can you possibly be aware of so much space at once? You can't. What do you mean be aware of? I don't I'm just a guest there. I'm just going to like, I'm going to go to my room. I get to be the only one in the pool in the hot tub. Like, I think it could be fine. Would you be in the pool in October in Colorado, though? Well, if it's an indoor pool. I guess. Which it probably would be if it's in Denver. But anyways. I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't disagree that it would also probably be creepy and weird, but and I wouldn't want to do it like they do in the movie for months or whatever. Yeah. But Of that experience, King would later state, That night, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulders, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of bed. Got up, lit a cigarette, sat in a chair looking out the window at the Rockies, and by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of the book firmly set in my mind. And that first draft of The Shining took less than four months for King to complete, Um, Originally, there was a prologue to the book titled Before the Play that chronicled some earlier events in the Overlook's history, as well as an epilogue titled After the Play, although neither of those original elements remained parts of the final published novel. 
Uh, the Shining was also heavily influenced by Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Is that the one that the Netflix show is based yes. on? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Edgar Allan's Poe, the mass. Ed- Edgar Allan Poe's. <laughs> He's like the attorney general. Edgar Allan's Poe. <laughs> uh, Edgar Allan Poe's. The Mask of the Red Death. That's when there's a murder of them. (laughs) Edgar Allan's Poe. When there's numerous Edgar... (laughs) Anyways, sorry. (laughs) And The Fall of the House of Usher. uh, And Robert Marasco's Burnt Offerings. The story has often also been compared to uh, Guy de Maupassant's story, The Inn. That was very good French pronunciation, or, very, or relatively Or good. very bad. I'm it, not really sure. It was close. <laughs> close. I had to look up that Le one and, and make sure. Poisson. Poisson. <laughs> Probably a little more nasal at the end there, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, Bill Thompson, who was King's editor at Doubleday at the time of publication of The Shining, actually tried to talk him out of publishing it because he thought that if you followed Carrie and Salem's lot with yet another horror novel that King would get typed as a horror writer, King considered that a compliment. He was like, do you know who I am? (laughs) (laughs) I hope he actually did. Like, do you know who I am? Look at at me. Who do you think you're talking to? (laughs) Uh, All right. (laughs) Those are some fun facts about the book. Let's go ahead and talk about the movie. I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. But you died. I killed you with Danny. You did this to Didn't you? I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. The Shining is a 1980 film directed by Stanley Kubrick and written by Kubrick and Diane Johnson. The film stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. The film is 84% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, has a 66% on Metacritic, and is movie number 63 on IMDb's Top 250. It might be the first or one of the first. I would have to go, but Gone Girl, I believe, is on that list of like IMDb's Top. This is their fan Oh yeah, I feel like we've had at least one other one. That I'm, was I'm on fairly that list. certain Gone Girl's somewhere on that list, uh, and I'm sure there have been others. But uh, well, Lord of the Rings movies are all on there. All three of them are somewhere on there. Yeah, um, I'm sure the Princess Bride is. Yes, so there's been plenty. Yeah, but my point being, it is on. It is number sixty-three. And so pretty high. Yeah, that's fairly high. List, yeah. yeah, Princess Bride's probably actually higher. Princess Bride's probably like top twenty-five. I would bet. Princess Bride is beloved. By it's everyone. a crowd pleaser, yeah. so it's yeah. <laughs> uh, the film had a budget of nineteen million dollars and ended up grossing forty-six point two million. I don't know why I include that every time, but I do. So deal with it. The film opened to mixed reviews in nineteen eighty, and I've got some reviews here that I thought were very interesting. Janet Maslin of the New York Times lauded Nicholson's performance and praised the setting of the Overlook Hotel uh, for being a great horror setting, but wrote, quote, The supernatural story knows frustratingly little rhyme or reason. Even the film's most startling horrific images seem overbearing and perhaps even irrelevant. End quote. 
Variety was also critical, saying, With everything to work with, Kubrick has teamed with jumpy Jack Nicholson to destroy all that was so terrifying about Stephen King's bestseller. And then this last review I thought was interesting is from Vincent Miciano uh, in Aries Magazine, which is like a was like a gaming magazine, like a Dungeons hmm. and like a tabletop game. I think it doesn't matter. So a nerd magazine. Yeah, I think it was like a nerd magazine. <laughs> uh, and his <laughs> concluded his review with, quote, The Shining lays open to view all the devices of horror and suspense, endless eerie music, odd camera angles, a soundtrack of indeterminably pounding heart, hatchets, and hunts. The result is shallow, self-conscious, and dull. Read the book. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> I didn't have any notes about it here, but obviously, um, subsequently, the film has been much more yeah. uh, critically acclaimed. Remembered it is much more fondly. It is, yes, remembered much more fondly in retrospect, and it's one of those films that people um, generally, uh, critics have come to. Uh, I didn't put it in here, but Siskel and Ebert both also gave it very bad reviews and were hmm. like, like less than two stars. I think Ebert gave it two stars, and one of them gave it like one and a half or something. So like on the lower end. Um, but yeah, since then it has grown, uh, in, in terms of sort of critics appraisal and, uh, it's one of those movies that's kind of cited as being maybe a bit ahead of its time or maybe not even ahead of its time so much as just misunderstood at its time, mm -hmm. potentially. That'd be interesting. I wonder if I could find like a, if somebody's done like a deep dive on when that turnabout happened and maybe yeah, like know. what the reason for that was, because there are plenty of movies that get panned and then people just forget just, about yeah, them. Yeah, forget about them. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. It's it, it's there. That that's a whole. There's a whole lot you could write a thesis oh, on I'm something sure. like that. Uh, about, so if you've written your thesis uh, about on the that, Shining and why it became a critical let darling, let me know because uh, I'd, I'd like to know. Yeah, a lot of times, at least, what prompts the the sort of re. Uh, readdressing of mm -hmm. those things is like a re-release on like dvd mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. or, or vhs home so, video yes a home video release is when that happens but as a that doesn't necessarily explain why it then becomes a positive like yeah but but a lot of times it's a re-release at a time something has changed in the cultural milieu mm -hmm. at the time where it's been so a movie came out in 1980 and maybe it got a home release on video in the early nineties or so, or whatever. I don't yeah. know. I'm making this up, but something, you know, there was some shift in the culture between 1980 and 1994 like that caused people that to cause people to reevaluate it. And that's, yeah, you, that's again, that's a thing you can write your, <laughs> your doctoral thesis on if you want to. Uh, so speaking of the book, Stephen King notoriously hated this, this adaptation saying, quote, although Kubrick made a film with memorable imagery, it was poor as an adaptation. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and that it, it turns out that it was, um, he hated it so much. It is the only adaptation of his novels that he could quote, remember hating. Hmm. So apparently before this, they're all like at least passable. Like he was like, eh, fine. <laughs> uh, King would then go on to say in 2013 in a 2013 and in, in, King would then go on to say in a 2013 interview, and this is something I kind of touched on briefly earlier, that Wendy is, quote, one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. He would go on to explain that she is, quote, basically just there to scream and be stupid, and that's not the woman that I wrote about, end quote. So he did not like the portrayal of um, Wendy in the film. Mm. And I, from my memory, 
Her characterization, not the best. Performance has its merits. How that performance was achieved, not not good. <laughs> so it's a real. That it's was a, real, a very succinct breakdown. It's I a real roller coaster. That. Yeah, <laughs> it's a real roller coaster. And also, I will say this too: I, I'm not a person that believes that in order for that performance to have been achieved, that you needed that. Like, there's yeah. no the the difference between take twenty or whatever, take fifteen, like a normal number of takes, and take one hundred and thirty seven. It was 27. 120, yeah, 127. There's, there's, yeah. There's no way we gained that much. I could be wrong, but I would severely doubt it. I feel like the quality would degrade. Well, and that's what he's attempting. Like, you can, like, the, the, that's what he's going for is because the performance in the cer- in certain scenes like that, they, he was looking for it to be completely, like, unhinged and, like, sure. So, like, you know. Sure. But also. Yeah. <laughs> but also don't do not do that. Don't do that to people. It's not cool. Suffer for your art. Don't make other people suffer <laughs> yeah. for your art. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, King hated the film so much that he would go on to write and produce his own TV miniseries of The Shining, which somebody mentioned uh, on Twitter asking us which one we were doing, which movie. And I was like, well, there's only one movie. There's a TV yeah. miniseries that's four and a half hours long. We're not doing that one. I, <laughs> and it was made in 1997. I didn't, I didn't realize there was a miniseries. So that person tweeted and I was like, hey, we got a tweet asking which movie we're doing. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure there's only one movie. I was like, I bet there was like a TV show. And I went and Google. I was like, yeah, there was a miniseries, which makes sense. Because a lot of King stuff gets done as miniseries. Yes. Like that's pretty common. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I bet there was a miniseries. And that's what it was. So now some fun facts from IMDb. The idea for Danny Lloyd, who plays Danny, the son, to move his finger while he was talking as Tony was, in fact, his own idea. He did it spontaneously during his very first audition. Also, by the way, IMDb fun facts take these all with a giant grain of salt. (laughs) For the scene in which Jack breaks down the bedroom door, the props department built a door that could be easily broken. However, Jack Nicholson was apparently a volunteer fire marshal at one point in his life. And so he destroyed the door way too easily when it was a prop door. So they had to switch back to a like a stronger normal door for him to chop through. So it looked more realistic. I bet he felt like a million bucks. I bet he felt so sexy. Slammed that axe through the door like and it just like obliterated. Destroying this door. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so apparently there were so many, and we talked about how, um, I didn't get into it too much, but Kubrick was also a fan of like kind of improvising and adapting scripts. The script was like the first draft and then you found the final draft during the filming. Mm -hmm. So like scripts changed a lot. And Jack Nicholson noted that during filming, the script changed so much that he literally stopped reading it and he would just read the only the new pages that were given to him each day. Like he wouldn't, he was like, I'm not, (laughs) it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of memorizing my lines and then having them be completely different when I get to set. So, uh, the famous, the infamous snowy May scene at the end of the movie consisted of nine, the, how they created the snow, 900 tons of salt and crushed styrofoam. (laughs) Which, well, that sounds environmentally conscious. Seems, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So according to Vivian Kubrick, in her making of uh, book, I, I, I didn't look into what this is. And I, I don't know if, I believe that's his wife, but I'm not positive. Stanley Kubrick's secretary spent weeks, if not months, typing all of the pages 
that say all work and no ploy makes Jack a dull boy for the scene in the movie where Wendy's like right finds all these pages and is rifling through them. And they all say Mm -hmm. like she thinks he's been writing his novel and they all just the same line over and over again. And that's one of those things. It's like, (laughs) oh, yeah, 1980, you know, printer. I mean, printers existed, but they weren't (laughs) they weren't nearly as prolific. And uh, yeah, apparently she spent quite a bit of time typing. I guess we couldn't photocopy them. Had to be authentic. Yeah, well, it's true. Photocopy existed. Yeah, it, it did, and but that's I guess it needed to look authentic because yeah, he he is using a typewriter in the movie. Yeah. So I assume that yeah, they wanted it to look. I guess a photocopy wouldn't. I don't know. Oh, again, Stanley Kubrick's like crazy. You could so photocopy you could at least photocopy. some of them. But sure. Uh, and finally, the MPAA uh, would not allow blood to be shown in any trailers. Uh, or at least any trailers that would be seen by like audience of all ages. Mm-hmm. Like you would have to get like a red band trailer basically to show blood. You know the one where it's green at the front. And it says mm-hmm. this, this trailer has been approved for all audiences or whatever. If you want that kind of trailer, you can't show blood in your trailer. And apparently Kubrick persuaded them that the blood during the infamous um, uh, the, the, the infamous blood opens? elevator <laughs> scene was in fact not blood but rusty water, and this got the trailer passed so that it could be played as a as a green band trailer, which I thought was interesting. Oh God, <laughs> that's funny. Is that still the rule? Do you know? I have no idea if that's still mm-hmm. the rule. Um, yeah, I don't know what the difference. Like, I bet it's slightly different. You could probably put a little bit of blood, but maybe mm-hmm. not an elevator full. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't have any idea. All right, that was all I had about The Shining, the movie. But before we wrap this up, we're going to tell you where you can watch it. As always, check your local library. Or if you still have a local video video rental store, check with them as well. Uh, Shining is something that would probably likely be at a library. Yeah. They'll probably have several copies. It's one of those, like, Criterion collections. You Mm -hmm. You could probably find it at your library. If you have an AMC Plus subscription through Amazon Prime, you can watch it there, which we do not. So we're going to have to just rent it, probably. Uh, if you have AMC through any cable TV or like a satellite provider or anything like that. Uh, so it's on AMC, basically. Yeah. Anywhere you get AMC or AMC Plus, you can probably watch it uh, or, you know, um, record it, that sort of thing. Uh, you can rent it from YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, or Vudu for $3.99. Or if you have Sling TV or Fubo TV with a premium subscription, and that may be a premium subscription that adds AMC or something like that. I AMC would think Plus, so, probably. Yeah. Uh, you can watch it there. Or finally, Philo with a subscription, whatever that is, whatever Philo I is. I don't know what I've I think we've had it on it. here once before or twice before. Uh, we just go to one of those, like, where can you stream it websites yeah. and then pull all the places it says. So uh, These are all in America, by the way. So if you're in Canada, you're shit out of luck. I think uh, both April and Shelby said that they usually rent through YouTube. Yeah. So. There you go. There you have it from two Canadians. Two Canadians. Wow, we have two of our most, our two of our greatest fans, our best listeners are both <laughs> Canadian. We got a big Canadian uh, contingency <laughs> in the This Film Is Lit fan base. That's going to do it for this uh, prequel episode. Uh, yeah. Sweet. Until next time, guys, gals, non-binary, everybody else keep reading books keep watching movies and keep being awesome